This is Driven by Data, the podcast. Welcome back to another season of Driven by Data, the podcast, powered by Orbition Group and hosted by me, Kyle Winterbottom. So here we are, season three of Driven by Data, the podcast. I'm delighted that you've decided to tune in and rejoin us. We've got some absolutely fantastic content coming your way. So all that's left to say is sit back, relax, and enjoy this episode. In order for your organization to make the best possible business decisions and to make the most of your data, you need the very best people. And that's where Orbition Group comes in. We have a proven track record in partnering with some of the largest brands in the world to the most innovative and disruptive startups and everything in between. We go beyond traditional recruitment services. The organizations which we partner with benefit from the added extras that we offer, such as raising your organization's brand awareness to the data and analytics community, providing you with insights into the current market and your competition, benchmarking you against the industry to give you the best chance to successfully attract the best talent. We want to become an extension of your business to identify, engage, attract and retain the best talent possible. If this sounds of interest, please reach out today by visiting orbitiongroup.com. Welcome to Driven by Data, the podcast, season three. Today, I'm delighted to be joined by Ashika Hyde, who is the head of trading analytics and data science at Dunelm. So Ashika, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for having me, Carl. Really looking forward to talking with you. Yeah, absolutely. Now, looking forward to this. So um, I guess where we always start, Ashika, is by asking our guests to give themselves a brief introduction into their background and I guess journey up until this point in time, if uh, if you would. Yeah, of course. Uh, so I think I had no clue about analytics at the start. It was very much like I was in an engineering degree and I was lucky to have a maths department and operations research. And I started to realize during my um, studying at university that actually what I was interested in was problem solving, logical reasoning. And uh, there was this bank coming on campus to recruit called Capsule One. And I knew that uh, that was the interview process, essentially. So I thought that could be an interesting organization to work for. And it kind of fit in with the whole, you know, Indian did engineering, went and worked in a finance company <laughs> in persona. So I, I thought, that's the thing. That's what I do. And so I came and joined Capsule One in um, Nottingham from the India. And uh, I loved it. It was everything I wanted. And I think I found that, you know, I found my passion, I guess, not just my profession. It's a really good organization to start your career in analytics and everyone's an analyst. You learn so much and you get stretched so much. Uh, so it was an exciting place to start. I think what I started to realize, though, was that I was more interested in the customer facing side. Uh, rather than the risk analytics. And so I started to look for other opportunities and I thought retail might be an interesting thing. You know, Boots is a really big organization in Nottingham. Uh, it's a store I knew and a brand I liked. Uh, so an opportunity came and that's where I moved across to. Uh, so I stayed in Boots for a long time looking at spatial analytics. And then um, 
Walgreens got involved, so got the opportunity to actually take this as a discipline across lots of different countries. Uh, so, you know, um, Chile, Mexico, Norway, Thailand opened a few stores in South Korea. So it was a really exciting three years wow. uh, of learning about um, working remotely, <laughs> working with new cultures and, um, you know, still being able to have an impact. Um, and it was, I think, during my time in Boots that I started to really think about value realization through analytics rather than just finding potential value and starting to find a passion for that more than anything else. Um, and and uh, that took me to doing an MBA and wanted to learn more and also the opportunity with Jaguar Land Rover, which was like um, kind of taking a break from analytics in a way because it was a totally analytics engagement role that I did for a couple of years. And it was about working with the board and creating an analytics strategy and then implementing that. So that was uh, like a huge career change and learning about a lot of different things. I used to sometimes like say that every day felt like three days in a week, like a month, because it was like entirely development all the time. But also something that I'm really grateful for having done because I learned so much. Um, and then I came back to Boots more in a US facing role. So working for the global organization uh, for a few years and now at Denam. So Denam's been really interesting because I feel like everything I've learned from my experiences and talking to people and from actually doing uh, it, uh, this is an opportunity to bring it all together. <laughs> and really kind of make a change in an organization. So I couldn't believe that this opportunity was there. So I was very excited about it. So that's where I'm now. Nice, nice. So obviously we've got listeners from um, when we last checked uh, about 140 countries around the world. So um, most will know Capital One, most will know Boots or Walgreens, most will probably know Jaguar Land Rover. Um, many outside of the UK possibly don't know who Dunelm are. So just give the, the audience a bit of a, a kind of steer on kind of who Dunelm is, you know, what they do, type of business, et cetera. Yeah, of course. So Dunelm are, yes, UK based only. They're very well known and I think very well respected in the UK. We are a homewares and furniture retailer um, and we have um, about 170 odd stores across the UK. Uh, we also have, um, you know, a thriving online business. Um, and um, a, a lot of the UK um, people are customers, uh, me included. Uh, I think I discovered Danelle when I moved from a, like a furnished apartment to an unfurnished one. And he's my husband now, but at that time he was a friend. And um, I asked him if he knew where, and he said, I'll ask his mom. And she actually offered to drive me <laughs> to the Lilkiston Danau. And I bought everything I could possibly need. So I've always been a fan. So I think everything you need for your home, you can find in Danau. It's high quality and great value. 100%, yeah. On honestly, Danau reminds me of um, of my teenage years when my my mum used to pick me and my little sister up from high school and she oh, would just nip into Dunelm and I'd just be sat outside thinking oh god not again um so <laughs> slightly different memories for me maybe um but yeah so I guess obviously they brought you in there head of uh, trading analytics and, and data science just give us um a kind of idea of you know what was the purpose of bringing you in what what are you what's the end game here what have you been tasked with trying to kind of execute for them 
Yeah, so I, I think if um, you look at the Denam website, one of the pillars that they talk about is data analytics. And I think that was something that really excited me because in previous organizations, it's been like a support function, like the horizontal across the main pillars. Um, the fact that it is a pillar in itself, to me, that spoke of, you know, how well engaged the exec were and how keen and how important they thought it was. Um, so um, as part of that strategy, it, it was a expansion plan to, uh, for analytics and the analytics organization and myself, my colleague and uh, my director, we all kind of joined more or less at the same time. And I think it was initially really about understanding the organization and understanding where we can support um, uh, the, the business plans and the strategy and their ambition. And, and then it was about building the team that could do that in the best way possible. Uh, and it's been very much about embedding the team in the last few months of, uh, you know, starting to really deliver that value and starting to build a really strong reputation with the exec of being valuable to the organization. Um, so, um, yeah, and personally, I'm head of trading analytics, so that makes me responsible for helping improve uh, performance, but also the customer experience from uh, our stores and our online um, business. And the other part is I look after stores operations. So all the analytics around, you know, location, the space and the range within the stores. And then I have a small data science team where we are starting to build intelligence into existing processes. Nice. So I think obviously, Ashika, you and I have got to, to know each other a little more over the last kind of uh, couple of months. Uh, and I think you're, when we first spoke, your kind of journey fascinated me, right? Because we started to get into this conversation around knowing how to communicate and storytell with different types of audiences within a business um, and how different levels of data maturity play a part in understanding yeah. which buttons to press or which levers to yeah. pull, however you're going to call it. And obviously then your your career path and going to an organization like JLR, where that became practically your full-time job, right? Working with a board to get them engaged. Yeah, absolutely. You know, what a what a fascinating journey, but also, you know, as, as we both know on LinkedIn, you get these debates all the time, right? About how you, what does value mean? How do you get to the point of realizing value? How do you make that commercial? What do the board and the ex-co's care about? So I guess ultimately that's, uh, that's hopefully what we're going to kind of get through today, which should be really interesting. So I guess from your perspective, then obviously working across um, three or four different large organizations, how do you how do you go about getting kind of executive alignment for data analytics, especially in the earlier days, right? Once when it is still a bit unknown, shall we say? Yeah, absolutely. So I think you know that's not a problem. The exec engagement in organisations which have a long way down their maturity journey, and that's why I started. So it was like coming into that organisation and having to learn how to do that. And I think. For me, if I just boil it down to a few things, I think the first thing is showing value because I think the exec are bought into it, they've heard about it and they've seen it talked about, but have they actually experienced it for themselves and have they actually seen the value being delivered? That's rare uh, when you're in the early days. So being able to show that value really quickly and you know, getting those quick wins under your belt is really important. Um, you know, get your foot through the door uh, to then start having some of those larger conversations. And then I think the second thing I'd say is 
visibility that there is a problem because that's the other thing like we spend so much time in organizations making all these data problems invisible to the exec so Mm. what they see is like beautiful dashboards great analysis of really high quality nobody sees the patchwork quilt of (laughs) insanity underneath really Um, so making that really visible to them so that they do realize that there is a genuine issue here um, and we did that like quite simply once about by just putting it on our dashboard. We literally had a rating on data quality, analytics quality, and repeatability. Um, and it was visible on the landing page of every dashboard. So we could say that, you know, you can trust this analytics quality is really high, but the data quality that's built on original data is actually quite poor. And as a result, it's not really repeatable. So, you know, when you deliver something and they love it and then they want it uh, every month or every week, and you have to then have that conversation about why they can't have it. Mm-hmm. So we just made that really visible up front. Um, and I think the third thing is about truly inspiring people. So I think what I've found in a lot of organizations, because the examples you hear are quite often from digital natives or people who've started with data. And exciting as much as that is, if you're not a digital native and you have all this technical debt and all this history to work through, actually that's not inspirational. So trying to find people who are slightly further in the journey, but who came from similar organizations that start sharing their stories, or even if you can get them to come in and talk. Um, so truly inspiring that data analysts can make a difference to their organization in a way that is relevant to them and relatable to them. So I think those are the three things I think are quite key yeah. to do in the early days. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's really interesting. So the, the, the notion of quick wins, we were kind of, this has been drudged back up again as a as a kind of talking point on the basis that often if you correlate most organizations kind of data and analytics kind of transformation strategy you know that's normally a three to five year period right on average but obviously the tenure of most data leaders is probably two two and a half years right so i I always find it fascinating that we talk about quick wins but i guess somewhere along the line there also needs to be tying those quick wins Obviously, delivering them is massively important to get by in it and show the value and, and kind of, you know, that then moves the moves the needle, right? But I, I do wonder sometimes whether data leaders come into this and they try to produce quick wins to get value, but it's not in line with the business and, and the, the overall kind of data strategy, right? Which is, is kind of really, um, really interesting. Um, I really like the notion of actually communicating and storytelling by showing them how <laughs> what problem they have and um, that's that's uh that's quite effective but i guess in terms of the concept of value like from all of the roles that you've performed what does value mean based on your experience to kind of boards and executives because if i could just tie that back for a second back to my previous point about you know the length of time for most yeah. transformation journeys being three to five years, but we're talking about quick wins. Often people that sit at that level are, you know, they're focusing on certain types of metrics that are normally, you know, PL numbers, revenue up, revenue down, cost savings, whatever the case may be. And I don't know whether that always correlates with quick wins, you know, so I, I do wonder sometimes, are these looking at things that just, it's almost impossible to get quick wins in? So how do you make that visit? How do you understand what value means to them and then how do you deliver that in line with the strategy sorry that was a really long question but i hope you you got it 
it's all so interrelated, isn't it? Like, so um, when I say quick win, sometimes I mean something as silly as like, I know um, I worked with someone who basically said they looked at this Excel file every day because it was really important to them. And it took half an hour to load if they had a good internet connection most of the time it didn't load and it was really frustrating and so they'd kind of download it somewhere and then it, they'd look at it but it would be like slightly out of date and it, it, just complaining about it and we could fix that problem it was something fixable and it's not something I'd usually pick up as a project but you know I knew this was something that really really annoyed him and so it was like a good one it took about half a day. We got it fixed. He was thrilled. And it was suddenly like, you clearly are valuable to me, right? Like, because you've solved the problem. And and I think we talk about value. And obviously, when you talk about it on paper, you're talking about, you know, whether you're adding to the strategy and supporting strategic projects, or whether you're just creating cash, whether that's cost saving or revenue, or, you know, it might be customer experience. And obviously, you have to do all of that but we're all human beings. And at the end of the day, actually value quite often can be, did you solve one of my problems? And if you solved a small problem, I have a little bit of trust there and I'll give you a little bit more leeway and I might give you some of my time to have some of that broader conversations. And then you can start moving towards the bigger, more systemic problems Mm -hmm. slowly in time. Um, I think saying no is another really important thing. So like, you know, when you say about you do quick wins and sometimes you do the quick wins in a way that doesn't fit with the process or the way you'd want to work. Actually, once you've built that early trust, that's a really important part of the relationship to be able to say, no, cannot do that because it doesn't fit in. Um, And you might not be able to explain that, but you can find a way to make it clear that it's not you suddenly not wanting to help them, Mm. but the fact that it needs to be done in a certain way to be sustainable for you to be able to continue to be effective and add value. Um, But that initial quick win and winning trust, it's really about winning trust. And quite often, I think, you know, one of my friends said this to me ages ago, and I really (laughs) taken it on board. He talks about buying people time. So he said, if you do something for them that frees up their time, then surely at least, you know, 30% of the time you're freed up, you can lay some claim to and have a genuine conversation with them. And I think that's a really good quick win, actually, if you can find something that'll save people time, and then you can have that start of a relationship and start building trust. Yeah. Yeah. No, that, that is that is really interesting because, yeah, I imagine based on what some of these execs will be paid, <laughs> if you can say, well, how much is 30% of your time worth on a on a yearly basis, Mr. Uh, Mr. CEO, CFO, whatever the case may be, right? Yeah, that's uh, no, really, really interesting. Yeah, I think the... Um, I think that's a really interesting point around saying no, uh, and I know we we've started to speak more about the importance of that, which is which is great. But I think um, you know the the potential risk here is that all of these quick wins often then add up to this kind of insurmountable you know amount of work where you just become like a a service desk basically, you know, just kind of batting off ad hoc requests here, there, and everywhere, which makes it then really hard to ever get to that point of delivering you know tangible value towards the strategy which is is really interesting i guess based on all of your relationships then and roles previously you know working with boards and executive members and and stuff like that i guess how do you go about uncovering what value genuinely means to them you know because we 
we use the term very flippantly and value is in that in the eye of the beholder, right? You know, you just gave a great example there. It's, you know, a frustration of how long it took an Excel file to load. And so that's valuable to them. Absolutely. But I guess more holistically speaking from a business standpoint, how do you kind of get under the the bonnet of that and understand, okay, you know, this executive team, what do we need to do to prove that we should be here and, you know, we, we deserve further investment because we can make you better at what you do? Yeah, so done it in two different ways. And I think both of them have been effective. And I think, I guess, it depends on the culture and the organization. So in one of the organizations that I worked in, um, it was very hierarchical. So to get to the executive took a long time because you had to meet your counterpart and then they introduced them and you to their boss. And then you met them. So it was like a three, four month process. And I, I quite like getting a move on things and <laughs> working at pace. So I just kind of went like, okay, in the meantime, what can I do? And so it became like a bottom up where I reached out to the people in the um, teams that of the exec I wanted to talk to. I'd met my counterparts, asked them to introduce me to people in their areas who they knew were more interested in data and analytics. And I started running workshops with people and just saying, you know, what are all your ideas? No ideas too little, too big. I just want ideas. It doesn't have to be a structured analytics problem. Just tell me an idea that you think we could help um, with data and analytics. And and people came with loads of ideas, actually. And I then ran the workshop to really start to scope these ideas out and understand what the value is and the ease of implementation. And so what I had by the end of it was a prioritized pipeline of analytics pieces. And the ones that were towards the top, by the time I met the exec, I had these and I had done some kind of feasibility analysis on them. So I knew whether there's data and stuff. So I took to them four or five ideas that had come from their area I knew who it had come from. And I said, you know, these are the ideas your teams come up with. These are all feasible. This is what I think the value is. Quite often they thought I'd underestimated value. And so it was a case of tell me which ones you'd want us to work on. And that that was one way. Um, in organizations where I had direct access um, to the board, members or the exec, um, one of the questions that, again, somebody introduced me to, which I actually really like, and I've used is like, you know, what is the thing that keeps you awake at night because either you're so excited by the opportunity or so concerned by the risk and those are the things I want to know you don't have to talk data and analytics with me just share you know what your business issues opportunities are and share the context and then I won't have an analytic solution for all of it we know that but you know for a few of them I will and the degree of the solution will vary. So like, you know, an example could be complexity. That's a very simple thing, relatively simple thing for us to just describe the problem and diagnose it, but we can't solve it. They'd have to go. So I'd think of that like maybe a 20% analytics solution, or you could have some stuff that you just essentially automate and you have a 100% solution too. But I can do that. That's my skill set. That's my job. You tell me what the biggest problems are. And, you know, if you can find even one or two to go after, because that's where the value is. If something that the exec are excited about or concerned about, you know there's a reason. They know what they're doing. <laughs> they know what they're doing and they do it really well. So it's very much about um, supporting with that rather than anything else. Um, but I do believe prioritization needs to come from the exec. So you, whichever way the projects come, you need them to prioritize because without their buy-in, it won't get realized. Mm. 
That's interesting. Yeah. How how do you go about having that converse to kind of move this needle towards the conversation and communication kind of component? How how do you have that conversation with them to say, right, you know, which is the most important? Does that often rank by or which is going to make me or save me the most money? Or do you find that they often have, you know, quite a logical train of thought in terms of, you know, aligning it with a strategy, so to speak? Well, where there is a strong business strategy, I think that does win out very often. Um, sometimes there isn't. Sometimes you are in a world where there are lots of different strategies and different functions and there isn't one aligned one. Uh, and so there it's uh, slightly harder, but it does quite often come down to value. Well, it does come down to cash value quite often, but I, what I find is operational effectiveness pr- projects also get a lot of importance if it makes lives easier in the organization or makes it easier to run. Uh, those get a lot of value too. And if it's end of year, quite often cost saving ones. <laughs> so it depends. So, so all of it. <laughs> but I think it does depend on the business need and yeah. what's happening then at that time. Um, um, and it can vary from person to person. Where it's quite hard to get things prioritized is where it's cross-functional and it sits across multiple exec. If it's nobody's number one priority, but you know as a business that that's a really important priority, that's where trying to build that consensus and getting them all agreed to prioritize that can get quite hard. Um, And I think I always say that in analytics, you're the fair arbiter because you don't have any loyalties to any one area. Um, so sometimes you do have to be comfortable with maybe the bad guy and kind of uh, being the one saying, no, actually, you know what, uh, this is what matters to the business as a whole. Uh, and it might be less value for you and a bit of value for you, but it's the right thing to do for the business. Mm. And so sometimes you have to play that role as well, that you kind of, um, build consensus for something, even though it wasn't on anybody's own personal list. Yeah, I mean, that's really interesting because I guess, obviously, to get to that point, you have to be trusted and valued enough that you can stand in front of a line of business and say, you know, sorry, you're at this moment in time, you're not quite as valuable as this project. So, <laughs> you know, um, and I think a lot of people would struggle having that type of conversation. I think that what you talked about in terms of the time playing a factor right because obviously of course if if everything was equal i'm sure often it would come down to cash right yeah. but i don't know as a retail organization um i'm sure every ceo on planet earth would love to have a a really successful and smooth ring operation over christmas for example right as a so i think <laughs> timing does play a part right and that's interesting yeah. i haven't really thought about that too much before to be honest which is interesting I think yeah. transparency helps with the uh, trusting as well. Like, obviously, it takes time to build trust. And when you talk about the lifetime of uh, data leaders, sometimes it just isn't long enough. But being really transparent, like, you know, it, it's like this is everything my team's working on. This is how I've prioritized it. And making that visible and they can fight themselves a little bit on that um uh, but uh, being really transparent on what you're working on uh, so that it's very clear that you're not like showing preferences or you're not kind of uh, doing something you know that they wouldn't agree with in a way 
Uh, so it, there's no hidden agenda that's not visible to them. And I think there's a difference between, um, because when I first started doing it, I think because as analysts, you're like a lot more comfortable with chaos, I think. So you kind of go like, oh, uh, you know, it would be this way or this way or that way, but you'll find a way kind of thing. And I think there's a difference between being completely honest and being transparent. So you you kind of um, don't have to let them into all the chaos in the background, but it is about being transparent on what your team is working on, why they're working on that, what do you think is the value from it, and if they disagree with something, having that conversation and being willing to have your mind changed, of course. Um, but I do tend to do that, just make it visible to all my stakeholders, uh, everything that's happening, um, because then. Um, and they get a say, and you know, obviously, like I'm saying, I'm going to them for prioritization. But if for some reason I need to move resource, they see it and they get a say, and they can then have that conversation. Yeah, I mean, it's um, it's intriguing this because we're getting right into the the kind of the, the nuts and bolts here of the importance of communication, right? And I think this is interesting because obviously i think as an industry we often talk about communication very flippantly right you know like our communication is important and of course it is but i guess the mechanism by how you communicate and the different mediums and so on and so forth can be can can be you know really powerful you know so you're talking there about kind of transparency and you know being willing to have those difficult conversations with with stakeholders as we all know, you know, the execution of being successful as a data analytics team is often around changing minds and winning hearts and changing behaviors and attitudes towards ways of working that, you know, sometimes people have been doing the same thing for 15 years in a business, right? And you come along and say, actually, can you do it this way for me, please? Yeah. Um, so I guess to jump into the communication realm, then obviously, from a maturity standpoint, let's let, let's start there. What what are the major differences in terms of how you need to communicate depending upon the level of maturity of the organization? Because I, I believe yeah. from when we spoke last time, you've, you know, probably been at two ends of a spectrum and, and probably kind of had to, you know, feel your way around this, right? Yeah, no, I, I think, um, you know, when I moved from Castle One to Boots, I had somebody say to me three months in that they thought I was good at my work and they thought I was really clever, but they didn't understand most of what I said, that they probably understood 30% of what I said. And I started to think about it and I'd done a maths degree and then I'd gone to a fully analytical organization and I realized I just talked in maths, basically. <laughs> didn't talk in English any longer. And so it was like, <laughs> oh my God. So it was like learning that there is more than one way of influencing and communicating, like logical reasoning actually works really well with other analysts, but with very other few other people it's and even like myself I think of my biggest life decisions they weren't like you know writing pros and cons I wrote them but that's not how I made the decision so I think just learning different ways of influencing and communicating uh, and that hearts and minds thing is so so crucial to that of like you know um, I had somebody in com say to me once that you know what do you want people to know what do you want people to do as a result and most importantly, how do you want them to feel? And I hadn't ever thought of that before, of, you know, how do you want people to feel? And you need to put yourself in their shoes and understand um, what you're seeing, what effect that will have. And you might change how you're communicating based on what you want people to feel. Um, and so having real clarity before you communicate on 
those three facts of like knowing, doing and feeling is really important. And it varies by analytics maturity, right? So in um, a really mature organization, actually, it's not really about convincing people or winning people over. It's more about making a really strong case for what you're doing and the value of it and why it's important and being willing to have that discussion. Whereas in um, organizations that are early in the journey, it really is about getting people to trust the data and analytics and actually trust you as the representative of data and analytics because you can never really quite get people to uh, learn enough about data and analytics to really confidently trust it but if they trust you by proxy they'll trust what you're saying Um, so it is about that building that trust so all the communication needs to be around um, you know, talking about it repeatedly um, uh, to, um, and in a very consistent way. You can't say different things at different times so, and doing it continuously. Um, and I think the other thing is around thinking about what is it that you want to communicate and are you the right person to communicate it? Because I find quite often finding people who are early adopters in different organizations and empowering them to have that conversation. So you create champions and, you know, it's not always the most senior person. I've quite often, it's people who've been there for a long time, do are really good at what they do and are just trusted by a lot of people. So it's finding those people, winning them and then getting them to do the communication for you. And that can be so much more powerful than just doing it yourself all the time. Um, yeah, so I, I think those are the kind of things that I think you, it needs to be very thoughtful, your communication, because again, you can't take it back. Once you've said something, you've created an impression in people's minds, they've associated, made those associations, and they're very hard to unwind. Mm, yeah, absolutely. Now, that's that's interesting that you talk about the, you know, the, the way the comms team has kind of taught you to think about how people will think and feel and, and act based, based upon how you communicate with them. Uh, have you been in organizations where you've had, you know, an actual communications strategy or has this just been something that you've developed into? Cause you're evidently very good at it, Ashika. Um, but have you kind of, have you put kind of parameters around this previously where you have, right, okay, this is what, you know, we're going to say this at this time, or is it more ad hoc as you kind of, you know, in and around the business type of thing? So I didn't, ever before but when I did the analytics enablement part I very quickly realized that comms was going to be a really big part of it like they say that if you want 80% of your the people in a room to go away with your message you need to tell them five times that's a lot and it's really hard to do uh, because you can't just just repeat again and again so you have to find different ways of saying the same thing and so I very very quickly realized that that was a big gap and there is a comms team um it was for external purposes but they were very kind and they were willing to help me and so I did pull on that resource as much as they would let me (laughs) to just learn and uh, you know so before important meetings before important discussions I'd kind of try and uh share with them what I was thinking about and get their feedback um uh, and so that was really, really uh, valuable. Um, so since then, uh, it's been something that's been front of mind for me. And I, I wouldn't say I'm good at it. I think you kind of, um, it, you know, once I identified it as a learning opportunity, it's something that I feel like I'm still learning. 
Um, but it's something that I think is really important to learn and should be on a lot of people's agendas to learn. 100%. Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, as I said, we, we talk about communication very flippantly as if it's important. And um, of course it is, but, you know, I guess the fact that you've been so conscious with actually this is something that can really help me. So I'm going to go out of my way to become better and, you know, lean on other people who are, you know, experts in this area to help me develop and upskill in, in, in that as uh yeah, kudos to kudos to you. I guess did you get any hints and tips then from these people around I guess the different types of audiences? Because obviously how you would communicate with an executive board is probably very different to how you would communicate with your, you know, stakeholders within the lines of business to people inputting data, etc. Right? Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think I quite like the no do and feel I'm like a real sucker for three points kind of thing. <laughs> it just it feels like a structure. So like I think about no do and feel, and I think it'd be very different based on your audience, right? So like with your exec, it's about building trust and then feeling confident in what you're doing, and feeling like um, you know that they want to support it. Whereas with um, business users, you might you don't just want um, active support. You actually want them to be involved and want to get their hands dirty and get really into it. So it might be more about making it really relevant to them personally and talking about how their life will be better for it and why they want this change to happen. Uh, so you know, and you want them to feel really excited about it, tempered excitement <laughs> that they do understand the reality of it as well. Uh, so how you want them to feel is slightly different and what you want them to do is slightly different. So I quite like that as a framework of really thinking about when you communicate, do you really inspire people to know, do and feel as you want them to? Um, and if you don't, then you need to kind of circle back till you get to a point where you do. And if it's really important, then you probably test it. <laughs> tested on you know people close to you on your team then maybe you tested on some trusted people who are part of that actual group that you want to influence um so get it right if it's really important mm. give us give us some tips how, how do you test it on people without them knowing that you're trying to test them <laughs> well when you start with your trusted people you probably like you don't necessarily tell them up front but you do tell them that i'm going to do this with you and are you happy doing it and then you ask them exactly like you know what did they learn from it uh what do they think that i'm trying to get them to do what are the calls to action from it and you know how did that make them feel so you do ask them that and then you kind of align that to did that work or not and then if they are like um some of my most trusted colleagues i will then afterwards go like oh i just really completely missed the mark on that so can you what do you think how could i have done it differently because this is where i want to get people to and that's where the comms guys really come in handy as well um and you know um but it is about like um yeah you, you start with people you trust so you can tell them <laughs> And then later on, you might start with a small group of people. But I think, um, and it's a lot of effort. So you wouldn't do it for everything, but you would do it for something that's really, really important. So if you were going out with a communication that was going to the entire organization um, and that was really key and that was like kicking off your program, you know, you, you can't afford to get it wrong. So you do it there. You wouldn't do it for every small meeting. Um, yep. But yeah, where it matters, it really matters. It's, um, and this this topic absolutely fascinates me. Absolutely fascinates me. And I think what what's obviously so obvious is how intentional 
you've been with all of this to make sure that message lands and you know testing to make sure you it's been received in the right way in terms of what you want and in how you wanted it to be received um i think often again you know as i've said a few times now but we talk about this stuff very flippantly and people sometimes think you know communication is we'll say it once and we just expect everyone to to get it and and then when they don't you know it's kind of like oh they don't care they're not interested you know and then you get into the whole literacy and adoption piece and all of that type of stuff right which is is interesting and i think one thing i was thinking there you, th- there's possibly often many scenarios where what you want the everyone no matter if they're you know exco or board or whatever or a business user you know it could be like you talked about confidence right yeah. but, but i guess the difference might be that it's almost in the context and the nuance right so you want you might want the board to be confident in you but you might want the user to be confident in making decisions with data right so you want them yeah. to feel the same thing just in different contexts which is is really interesting absolutely yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, I was going to say on that, you know, um, there's this video and I think it's Heidelberg, but I'll, I'll have to check that. But somebody showed it to me. There's not much sound or anything. In it. And on the screen, you have like a big rectangle and a small triangle, small circle. And then this big triangle comes and, you know, it's just pieces moving on the screen. There's nothing human-like about them. But you just kind of sit there. I sat there watching it and thinking that this big triangle is bullying these two little and I was in floods of tears right? Like I was really kind of upset by this video. And I had put this whole story and I have used that for storytelling workshops since. Um, and very rarely, I think once it happened where somebody said, it's just things moving on a screen, surely. But everybody else has a story, right? And it's just how we make sense as human beings. And, and what that makes really clear to me always is that when you see something, you will build a story. Now, in this connotation, I've built a very sad, almost negative view to that. Um, it's going to be very hard to change my mind after the fact. You know, you could do all sorts of explanation, logical reasoning, but I've built that story of built emotional connection. So when you are going out and telling people something, take control of that story. It's really important because otherwise people will tell their own stories and they will tell their own stories, hundred different stories. Some will have positive connotation and great, they'll be on board. Some will have negative and you'll just lose them forever, really. So I think that thing just really kind of, it came as a shock almost because, you know, when you get all emotional and then you look at it and you're like, but it's just things moving on a screen (laughs) and you kind of almost feel a bit silly. But it made it really clear like nothing else ever had of how important storytelling is. And later on, when I was learning about communication, it was that realization that that's basically what you're trying to do. You're trying to build a story for people that is strong enough and relevant enough that they will trust it and they won't feel the need to make their own story to make sense of it. Because there will be a story. It's just whether you're in control of it or not. Yeah, just whether you're controlling the narrative of what people think, feel, and and, and do with that. Yeah, absolutely. Fascinating. Ashika, thank you so much for your time. Honestly, I, I could I could ask you questions for hours on this topic. It, <laughs> it just fascinates me. So, um, but look, thank you so much for coming on the show. Uh, it's been a really insightful episode and um, yeah, look forward to uh, uh, keeping touch and uh, seeing how the rest of your journey at Dunelm unfolds. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. No and problem. you know, I could talk for hours on this. So yeah, so, yeah. Um, but thank you very much. It was a pleasure. That's it for this episode of Driven by Data, the podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. 
I'll be back next week speaking with another thought leader from the world of data and analytics. Until then, please follow our Bishon Group on social media if you've not already done so, where you'll be able to subscribe and therefore be made aware of the podcasts as they arrive. And please share, like and leave reviews so that more people from our industry get to hear and benefit from these two. If you've got any questions or you want to suggest ideas for topics or potential guests, then please feel free to reach out to me. Thanks for listening and I'll be back next week.